0: My mom, is my mom is. 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 Funny. Patient. Understanding. Awesome. Uh, she always knows what's best for me. And caring. Lively. Loving. So caring. Always there to talk to. Very creative. Has never given up on me, not once. Charismatic. Loving. She's really hardworking. Gnarly. Completely selfless. She's really good at cooking. Like She makes fantastic mac and cheese. Reliable. Caring. Kind. Hardworking. She's kind. She's always there when I need her. She's very willing to put up with me and my craziness. Talkative. And loving. And hardworking. Amazing. Beautiful. And the best person I know. Thank you, Mom, for always being there for me and for always putting me before you. Thank you for loving me unconditionally. Uh, thank you, Mom, for being... Awesome and always being kind and to help out and uh, I, know you, I know I'm your very 15-year-old. I want to thank my mom for welcoming me into the family with open arms. just want to thank my mom for always being there for me and always doing whatever she can really just to make, take care of me and love me and get me to where I need to be in my life. I would like to thank my mom for being my best friend. I want to thank her for welcoming me into her family because she adopted me and that's amazing that she adopted four kids into her family when she already had four happy mother's day happy mother's day i love you mom happy mother's day happy mother's day happy mother's day Day. love you love you mom thank you for always being there Uh, i love you mom thanks for helping me out happy mother's day happy mother's day Yeah, there's some nice kids out there, you know, at least once a year. So, well, everyone, here we are on Mother's Day, of course, and it's the last Sunday of Eastertide. Next week is Pentecost. We celebrate the uh, coming of the church in the gospel year. So it's a beautiful day. Uh, So I need all the moms to arise because I have a blessing for you. Moms, arise. Stand up, moms. Just moms. All right, here we go. Moms. May all mothers receive the Lord's blessing for the gift that is only yours alone because nobody else understands it. May you ponder as Mary treasured and pondered all these things in her heart, the voice of God. And from deep within God's story, moms, is motherhood, is intertwined with God. And then for all of us who love their mom, may we find joy and gratitude on this Mother's Day, especially gratitude. Amen, moms? Amen. All right, moms, have a seat. I know you've been standing pretty much your whole life. So um, have a seat for a little bit. Then you can go back and fix lunch for everybody. No, I'm kidding. Um, All right. So this Sunday, I kind of want to zoom out on this Mother's Day and just get a really, really large picture. It's not really about Mother's Day, as you'll see. But it kind of is. It's actually about something even larger than that. So this Sunday I feel compelled to zoom out to the 30,000 foot level and provide us some perspective on children, your children, all children, and especially the church's children. All right? So what I have to say today is fairly straight ahead, and it's something like this. Moms, dads, step-parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and all the rest of you, you're not alone in raising up your children. You're not alone in parenting and influencing your children. You're not alone. It's not a task for you alone. Our families are not isolated, islands dotted across a vast ocean of life, even though society and culture and the media may tell you that. You actually are instead, you and your family are interconnected and interdependent upon the church, the church. In a single word, the church is wrapped up in a single word called covenant. Covenant is the operative word of what it means to be wrapped up in God, as a parent, as a family. This is what's binding us together. Covenant means that in the church, you are reliant upon one another. That's why we have covenanted together as a church. And the full force of the Holy Spirit of God is calling the shots in this covenant community. Okay? And that's why we baptize our infants when you're here for an infant baptism. And Pastor Garrett and Pastor Marta and myself, we, when we get around to actually baptizing the child, we say these words. Emma, Liam, whatever your kids, Emma and Liam actually are the most popular names right now for naming your baby. so I didn't want to put that in there. Emma and Liam, I thought they were popular like 20 years ago, but that's okay, I'm sure it's fresh for you. So we just say, Emma, child of the covenant. Child of the covenant. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are the words we say. We call the child a child of the covenant. Covenant, you know, it's that... um, It's kind of a, it's an old fashioned kind of word. It's a little slightly dusty as a theological word. And we don't use it. You know, you might have a covenant with your homeowners association, but you sure don't use really covenants in work very much. You have contracts, you have agreements, you know, and they kind of look like a covenant a little bit, but covenant is actually something really old. And it comes out of the Bible. And so um, covenant is so powerful we may say it is like the glue of God, that the tie that binds us. It's what makes us into a people, all right? So if covenant's so important, just what is it? It's this ancient idea, and like I said, it comes out of the Bible, and covenant is this agreement then between God and people. And the difference between a covenant and a contract is that a covenant can be one-sided. It can be unilateral, unilateral. God makes a covenant with us, but we may not even acknowledge or agree with it. Okay? Not in a contract. You have to have both parties agreeing. Otherwise, it's null and void, right? So that's one of the differences in a covenant. It can be unilateral, just coming from one side. That's one of the big deals. And covenant, then, is a promise of God. I promise, says God. To this very day, to this very moment, God has bound all people into the earth. And he says to everyone on the earth, I promise. Now, the very first covenant we run into in the Bible is between God and Adam and Eve, right? And God says to the Adam and Eve, He says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. You hear the unilateral, it's one sided. God is telling them what the agreement's going to be. I'm telling you, Adam and Eve, what your job is. This is the contract. It's actually a covenant that I'm making with you. This is your responsibility. This is your call. I promise, God says, I will uphold my end. Let's see how you do. Now, notice Adam doesn't get to put in his two cents at this point. The covenant's this one-way thing. God begets us. It's just like being a parent. Your kid didn't sit around as some little zygote saying like, I don't know if I want to enter the world or not. Right? They was like, out they come. And like, well, here I am. Okay. Unilateral. <laughs> they didn't get to choose. That was covenant number one the Adam and Eve. The second covenant is what we might as well call the rainbow covenant because it's with Noah. And this one's just slightly different but much the same. <clears throat> Noah, it's after the flood. Noah, I told you to care for the animals, and so now everybody on the earth, as a result of this, will be fruitful and multiply and spread out and cover the earth, instead of destruction, Genesis chapter 8. Ah, but I tell you this, I will never again, Noah, and all people of the earth, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind and send a flood, because we all know, we all know that the inclination of the human heart is evil from its youth. And so it isn't just to destroy all the living things just because of the evil inclinations of the human heart. I promise I'll be there. And that's the rainbow covenant. Good. We didn't get to choose much on that either. Finally comes the covenant, the third covenant, between Abraham, or Abram, as he was originally called, and God. The covenant between Abram and God. Once again, like the other covenants, God binds himself to the people. Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abram, I will bless all nations through you. The entire world's going to be blessed for you. Sounds kind of like the Noah covenant, right? And God says, I promise. So, now just go back for a moment. Because if you're a skeptic here this morning, that's okay. Then you have your yeah going on as you hear these sort of ideas of Noah and Adam and Eve and Abram. And you're thinking, these are ancient myths. These are ancient epic tales. And you probably may, maybe realize or you heard in, you know, some Western or world culture, Western civ or what world history or whatever, there were other creation myths and other flood myths and epics out there, right? And uh, so let's pay attention just for a moment to those people who are not in the Bible, the other civilizations and so forth, especially around the, near, uh, the ancient Near East. Human beings have always had some cosmic, enchanted story of why we're here. There's plenty of them out there. In my library at home, I have lists and lists of ancient myths and epics about how the world began. God, demigods, flood stories, creation stories. And some of these stories sound much like our creation and flood stories in the Bible. And by the way, it always kind of rankles me a little bit when you get off to the university and then you have some, you know, master's student who was raised... In some fundamentalist church. And they get there and their eyes get open. And then they finally figure out there's these things called like the Gilgamesh epic. The Gilgamesh epic. Or the uh, Atosus epic. The Atosus epic. And they're like, did you know that, there's, that, that there was a story just like Noah from another civilization? That the Noah story must just be made up. You ever hear that when you went off to college? Like, well, duh. It's not the only story out there. But this is the way the Bible's version of it's going. Can you get a hold of that? All right, fine. We're over that now, right? There's other myths out there, right? But here's some things to know about all of these myths, including the one in the Bible, that story in the Bible. One, water is always evil. Water is always evil, okay? Two, the God is always angry, and he's really ticked off at humanity, which really just shows in the epic story how much humans are really focused on themselves, God must be angry at me because I'm so important. You, you know what I mean? And that's the way it goes on these things every time. And, and what, the, what the God always wants then is some sort of an appeasement, an offering, something. Make me happy cause, because I'm not. And you should do something like throw another virgin in the volcano. Won't you do it so Quickly. And that's kind of the sort of thing you find out there going on, right? The God's always angry, and and then so these uh, ancient Near East myths um, uh, are not like the Bible's one, but they sound like it, sort of, right? All the other myths are full of manipulation, manipulation, and I'm just going to go there, manipulation. They are full of Adam Sandler's Cajun man, manipulation manipulation, because I want this to stick into your brain. And when you leave here, you say, I don't remember what that guy talked about, but he quoted some Adam Sandler thing. And just for you young ones, Adam Sandler is this person who became a movie actor, but he started on Saturday Night Live way back in the 90s. And he really didn't ever have too many characters. As a matter of fact, every movie that he made is just exactly the same as the last one. I'm talking Happy Gilmore, The Longest Yard, <clears throat> The Wedding Singer. He's always this sort of guy living in somebody's basement or janitor or something like that. And he kind of does something real nice and says, all shucks, and that's the end of the movie. And, uh, and he's pretty compromised And uh, don't let, uh, kids don't watch them. They're not good movies. So uh, anyway, um, mostly because they're really boring. So Adam Sandler came up with, you know, all right, I'm done with that. Manipulation, right? That's the kind of god you had to have, a manipulation god. And the gods are always a force of nature. You had your water gods, you had your crop gods, you had your earth gods, you had your sky gods, you had your sun gods, all the way around. Egypt, all over Mesopotamia, all over, you know, the crescent, the fertile crescent and all of that area. Manipulation. Make an offering. Make a sacrifice. Humor and appeases God. And maybe the God will let your crops grow. Okay. Manipulation. Then comes along Abram. And God says to Abram, Abram, I'm going to make a deal with you. Here's what I'm offering. This is what's on the table. You leave your father's religion, your father's polytheism, your father's land and beliefs, and even their language and customs and culture, and follow me, Abram, follow me. And I promise that I will make you the father of a great nation, and that you will be the father, the progenitor of all peoples across the earth. You will be a great people. And what you have here. Is a transaction. A transaction not manipulation. And the transaction. Is between Abram. Right. And God. I'll do my part. You do your part. You have to obey. So we've, we've made progress. We've gone from manipulation. To transaction. Right. And Abram then leaves his father's home. And the manipulation region uh, religion. And he sets out on this unknown journey. That's part of the risk. Because there's always a risk in following God. And little does he know at the time when he makes the transaction. That his wife, Sarai, will be childless. Even though God promised to Abram that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Now how's that going to work? Well, it works just like you think it would work in the Bible. His wife, Sarai, conceives at a ridiculously old age. And they have a kid, Isaac. Another popular name. Abram's name is changed to Abraham, which is just a slight nuance in in the language, which just simply means you'll now be father of a multitude. See, I got you a son. We're on our way. Transactional. God says, I promised. I promised you'd be the father of a great nation, and that's what's going to happen. So things develop with Abram, and his wife conceives at this old age. And then a huge change takes place in how Abraham now, that's his new name, how Abraham understands God. No longer is it manipulation. No longer is it transactional. It is now relational. He has now a relation with God. He gets a relation with God. Right? It becomes personal. God becomes a personal God. It's no longer this far-off appeasement God, throw the other, another virgin in the volcano type of God. Now what you have is a personal God. They can actually talk to each other. So in my research over the past few years, uh, I dove into a lot of things, and one of the things I dove into is attachment. And uh, scattered around the room, forty percent of you have an attachment disorder, by the way. And um, <clears throat> sorry, not you know pointing out anybody, but attachment then becomes really interesting. Because um, psychologists in the psychology of religion, people who actually most of the time don't believe in God, uh, have determined that God is an attachable figure, but not any God, only the God in the Bible, the God of the Jews and the God of Christians, is an attachable figure. In other words, you can attach to God the same way a little duck attaches to its mom. Now, how's that interesting? No other religion or faith or practice has that same thing going on. Isn't that a curiosity? That God is an attachable like a parent type figure? Relation! That's what you have going on. This then becomes the covenant between Abraham and the Hebrew people. Personal. God becomes personal. And the covenant, that agreement between God and humanity continues. But now it becomes this personal agreement. Right? Right? The promise continues on. The Hebrews begin to worship God, not because they need their crops to grow, although that happens every now and then, because they're connected to God. They connect to God for love's sake. The Bible's relational God is what separates the Bible's God from all other gods, faiths, and religions. And the covenant binds God and Abraham and his descendants, I promise. I promise to stick with you through thick and thin, good times and bad times, whether you're obedient or whether you're disobedient, whether either of us are angry at any given time, whether you feel betrayed or whether you feel honored, I promise I'll stick with you. I'm bound to you under the covenant. The covenant with God goes well, more or less, from the time of Abraham and it goes on to Moses and then we get to King David around 1000 BC, right? And King David In the Psalms, those 150 Psalms right there in the middle of the Bible, he writes some of the most honest and most moving prayers that humanity has ever experienced. Some of them, uh, like uh, John Wesley wanted to throw them out. He wanted to throw out about 50 of them because they were so angry, you know. I'm I'm an angry guy, and, and I'm angry at you, God. And he says, oh, let's just keep everything kind of light and happy and, you know, bunnies and chicks. And it's like, you know what? That's not real living, Real life is full of people being angry at God. You know what the difference is between David and the Bible and the prayers in the Bible? They never sit around and say some atheistic comment like I don't believe in God. Instead the Jews are always connected to God. They're bound to them. Handcuffed to God. They go to God even when they're angry and disappointed in God. How dare you God? You've abandoned me God. Lover and friend have left me God. Yet Will I cling to you, says Job. That's the difference, this relation with God. That's what's going on. That I promise is still there. Now, after David, after King David, after 961 B.C., the Israelites begin to drift away from God. Slowly, they have their ups and downs, mostly downs, and it goes down, down, down until about the 8th century and then the 6th century, and they all get led off into captivity, and that's called the exile, and it's bad, and they forget about God, and only a few people, Daniel and a few others, actually remember God, and it just goes way on downhill. The relationship covenant, no relation, no manipulation, no transaction. Just nothing. But some people try to remember like, well, we're in dire straits. The Roman Empire's got their foot on our neck and we're all like, you know, being taxed to death. And maybe this God thing's got something to say. And a few people, moral fundamentalists, legalists, come along and they begin to say, I'll tell you what the problem is, folks. The problem isn't anything to do with the fact that we cannot get our rules going. We got this book with all these laws in it and if we just do those, then God's going to free us up. Okay, And that's what the Pharisees begin to say. And they are the moral police of Jesus' day. And Jesus has his most, uh, you know, his harshest words for the Pharisees in his day. Because they took the relationship and turned it into a legal contract. They turned it into do's and don'ts. And that's why I go around saying all the time, you know what the enemy of Christianity is? It isn't atheism or anything like that. The enemy of Christianity is moralism. Because you don't need a God to be a moralist. You can be a secular moralist, by the way, if you're just all black and white about everything. Conservative or liberal, by the way. Okay, in the political comment. I'm done. Yeah, so Jesus confronts the Pharisees and their legalism, and Jesus brings the relationship back into the covenant promise. Jesus says God is our Father. Now, when the Pharisees heard that, they said, yes, yes, this is right. He is our great father from the epic past. And, And Jesus is like, no, no, no. He's my dad. You don't get it. He even begins to call God Abba, which in Aramaic, his old Hebrew dialect, Abba means daddy. At least some scholars think so. And this Abba father Jesus says, is like an old woman who turns her house upside down looking for a lost coin that she's dependent upon for her, for her uh, retirement in old age. And you and I, Jesus says, are the lost coins. And Jesus says this Abba Father is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 other sheep in his fold and goes out and looks for the one lost sheep and will keep searching until it finds that one lost sheep this Abba Father will. And guess what? You and I, we are that one lost sheep. And Abba will wait for his long-lost rebellious child, a disobedient child, an evil child, who took his father's inheritance and ran off. And that Abba is waiting for all of his prodigals to come home. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are the lost sons and lost daughters, lost because we're not home with Abba. This is the God of the I promise covenant, the relationship. Because everyone, covenant says that even though you and I may fail to uphold our end of the agreement, God always holds up his end of the covenant, even when you don't think he's there. And isn't that the way parenting works? I'll never forget the Oklahoma Federal Building bomber, Timothy McVeigh's father, waiting across the road the day before his son's to be executed. And the reporter asking, so what do you think of your son? And Timothy McVeigh's father says, he's my son. That's all he said. You can't lose that. You may disagree with him all day long. But he didn't disown him. He couldn't. He's his son. God upholds his covenant. Just like he did with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Jesus and you. The covenant continues all the way to you and me that's why you're here. Maybe just to be reminded that you belong to God, but God belonged to you first. And as the followers of Jesus shape up into the church, and the New Testament comes around, this covenant is now broadened out into the entire world. That's what they begin to understand. And the symbol in Abraham's time and for all the Jews forward of being a part of the insider covenant community was circumcision right? Now, I, I, I said all week, I said, now, you know, there's something a little wacky about talking about circumcision on Mother's Day, you know, like, I mean, you know, like when you leave here and you get in your car, like, can you believe that guy talked about circumcision on Mother's Day? It's kind of weird. So I just said, well, I don't care, but on Father's Day, we're talking about women's ministration, and, you know, I try and say it really fast. so little kids don't get it. So, but that's okay. Maybe they did, and I didn't understand if they understood that word ministration, but I'm just going to say it really quick. So there we go. So that's what you got to look forward to Father's Day. Come on back. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I'm not preaching that day. Okay. <laughs> Um, now, so as the church comes about, circumcision's, okay, this is, I said, I tried to avoid it first, service. I said, circumcision's not going to make it, but I actually wrote right here in my text, it said, circumcision's not going to cut it anymore. So, um, so uh, for this new family of God in Jesus, that's not going to make it anymore. And so they come up with baptism. And baptism replaces the covenant of circumcision. Why? Because now, once again, like the promise to Adam and Eve and to Noah and to Abram, the covenant is for all people of the earth. And women are a part of the new community. And children are a part of the new community. And everyone's a part of the new community. And the promise has returned back to everyone. I promise. No matter who you are, what your identity is, no matter what you've done wrong, Or even what you've done right. I promise. And we all stay connected together. And that's why entire households could be baptized because of the promise. Paul baptizes the entire household of Stephanus, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul baptizes the jailer's entire household, Acts chapter 16. Lydia's entire house comes under the covenant. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and his household's baptized, the entire household. And scholars are convinced that household baptism included everyone. Servants, extended family that won't leave, children, and infants. They're all in the covenant community. It did not matter whether or not they decided to join. You see, that totally offends our modern existential idea that we all get to choose our religion and you, can, you, know, you don't understand that atheism is actually just a Western invention of the last, like really since about Nietzsche, really before, maybe back to Francis Bacon, 17th, 18th century. It's quite a modern thing. It doesn't make any difference if you believe in atheism that there isn't a God or not. Does that make a difference whether there is a God? You know, it's like shutting your eyes. I see no people. There are no people. There's no people ever existed. They're gone. Like, what's that mean? Okay, all right, enough of that. What it means is, is that you're bound to God. Right? You're bound to God. And entire households were being brought into the covenant, into the promise, because it's unilateral. It's God's promise to us. And that's why you bring your children in. So this covenant promise of relationship continues out to every faith community in Jesus Christ. Churches are the new community. Churches are the light on the hill. Churches are the salt in a tasteless world. And when the church is at its best, it's especially salty. <laughs> With all of our faults and flaws. And that's why moralism is so against the church. It's not because we're all, you know, embracing immoralism. It's just that you and I get, the ones, get to be the ones who come in. And we're not Perfect. And God still says to us, I promise. I promise. All of us with our faults and flaws. All of us are jars of clay carrying about the living water. So mothers, your life, with all of its ups and downs and its overwhelming joy and its crushing losses, it all belongs, Mom. Your life is hidden in Christ, inside of the promise, child of the covenant you are. Your children are children of the covenant. They belong. And your lives, your children are hidden inside of the promise. And we baptize our children, not as some magic manipulation, not as some transaction with God, so that if we do it, you know we're going to get something out of God. Like now he owes us because we baptized our children. No, we baptize our children because of God's promise. Someday, like Abraham, they will have to be obedient and and say, I agree, relation. Or they ignore it and they don't follow the covenant. I promise. We are the body of Christ, everyone. We are the covenant village. We are those people. That belong in here. And every faith community is like a village. Because our society does not have a village. Do you understand it? This is one of the breakdowns in affluent western society. We don't have a village space. You know? Um, we, we have what sociologists call first space. In other words, we have airports and highways and grocery stores and even Starbucks and all of that. They're like these <clears throat> kind of generic utilitarian spaces. You go there for one thing usually, and you don't really talk to anybody else. And then you have your living room, what sociologists call third space, which is your private space. What's society missing? The middle ground. Where's the village? We don't have it. In the old days, people depended upon a village. That's how justice happened. That's how people cared for each other. That's where people, you know, took care of each other. And we're missing it. And the church fills that void of the village because we're a covenant community. And that's why we'll let anybody in here as the rest of the community accuses us of as Lakeland Community Church. (laughs) We started this church to help people raise godly homes and children because I just heard and Lori and I heard like you know what, if you were a missionary and you got dropped into Lee Summit, Missouri in 1994, what do you think the people would be interested? How would you translate the gospel to these strange foreign Lee Summitites? Children. And that's why we bought this building with its athletic field over there. Children. And all that space upstairs, children. We have an elevator out there that was not on not The city didn't require us to have an elevator. We chose to include that elevator. You know why we chose to put that elevator in out there? And it was outrageously expensive, by the way. We put it in here because a family had a kid that was in a wheelchair. That's why that elevator is there. One child. That's why your people, your friends and neighbors and uh, fellow church people, your brother, sister, Christ are over there serving your children right now. Because they're bound to you. Next Sunday, some new folk are going to come in. Silly new folk. They're going to come in and they're going to take vows about being like members, wink, wink, of Lakeland. And little do they know what they're getting into. Like membership, you know, like it has its privileges or something. Like, I don't think so. What it means is we're bound together as the village. What it means is that you will now be in the nursery sometime maybe. Oh, yeah, and we're going to ask you for a money, a ton of money, so we can go do things like Haiti and Jamaica and uh, cure women in Liberia and go to China. Uh, you know what I mean? And then you're going to get into a small group and carry each other. That's what it means. They don't know what they're getting into. Let's all applaud them next week. That'll be a blast. Okay. Let's see what they think of that after we get them into here. Right? Right? We're going to be people who stick it out through thick and thin. We'll share everything we have, time, talents, and treasures. And in the end, we'll all do something bigger than each of us individually could ever do alone, I promise. So moms, you may ponder this promise in your heart and treasure all that you've experienced in this life with your kids. From your child's first cry through ups and downs and graduation and marriage and their children, and moms... Through it all, you're going to say to your child, I promise. You're bound to your children. You can do no other. You won't agree with them. But you say, I promise. Just like Abba has always said to you, I promise. This is covenant. We've been talking about the covenant symbol of baptism. And so that's our one symbol, our one sacrament. In baptism with baptizing our children and as well as adults. And now we come to the other symbol of baptism. And that's the Lord's uh, table. The Lord's Supper. So if the servers want to come forward, that'd be good. And so we come to these two sacraments. Understand that both sacraments are about belonging. Right? They're about belonging. And that's why on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he, he took a loaf of bread Took like food, right? Something very real. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body that's for you. That's how much this God's going to give himself to you. And he says, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me because I'm giving myself to you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is what we constantly remember. This is what binds us together. So would you stand with me, please? And here's the prayer that Jesus taught us. And understand how much this prayer, okay? Understand how much this prayer is actually a prayer of I promise. A covenant. An agreement. So let's pray it together. Will we? Let's go. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the chalice, consume it, and return to your seat in prayer. Come whenever you're ready. Last Sunday to do this Easter uh, benediction, all right? The good word here at the end. So you can kind of read it on the screen. There's the cross over there. So here we go, everyone. I got my part. You have yours. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Everyone? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.